0: Welcome everyone, can you hear me okay in the back? Okay, great. So we did have a little change in speakers and this lecture could actually be called um, the lecture that no one wanted to give. So uh, what happened is this is the first time pain week has had an ED pain track. And uh, we submitted something we gave, this is our, my third talk since seven o'clock this morning, so forgive me if I'm yeah, tripping all over myself. But so we submitted something called Child Life 101 for emergency care providers, and I received uh, an email from Deborah Wainer saying, hey, I'm thinking about starting an ED pain track. Do you have any other ideas for topics? And I said, you know, um, let me think about it. And she goes, well, I need to know by five o'clock today I have to decide if I'm going to add this track. And I was literally driving into work for a shift. So I pulled over, I'm really bad about texting and driving, but I pulled over on the side of the road and just thought of some things I wanted to hear about. And one of them was how to complete a rapid pain assessment in a busy ED because and we'll go over some of the challenges we have in the ED and why that's hard to do. And I thought, gosh, I'd really love to know what everyone else is doing. So um, she said, you know, she chose like, I sent like seven topics and she chose like four of them. So about two weeks later, I said, Do you need any suggestions for speakers and she goes you're doing them i went really okay so i you know talked to some of my different colleagues and we kind of have a whole team here doing the uh the the pain uh, ed track and uh we all played around and shuffled cards with who was going to do it and everyone was like this is the hardest talk i've ever done in my life so you are going to participate today (laughs) we are going to determine how to do a rapid pain assessment and you're going to be part of that process and we're hoping that by uh, next year, we're gonna have a little cute acronym or a screening tool that's gonna be called something like RPAED, Rapid Pain Assessment ED, or, or some cutesy little title and we'll trial it. I'm actually also over emergency medicine research so at our department, so um, you know we may be doing a study on this hopefully next year. So again, this was a description that we turned in before we started this adventure. We really don't have any financial disclosures. Um, Dr. Sheikh and I both are part of something called the Pain Assessment and Management <clears throat> Initiative. It's a privately funded patient safety grant. There's a website, we have some cards up here. It's all free access, nothing commercial. There's online learning modules, there's a dosing guide. All we're really trying to do is improve pain management and care in the emergency department. So uh, we're gonna be talking about um, some current You know, pain scores, pain tools that are in the literature, pros and cons to using those in the ED, and some of the barriers that we have, and talk about where to go from here. So, um, what's going on in the world of pain? We're now into September 2016. And, uh, you know, most of you are here because you're interested in pain. And as you know, there's been this total upheaval in the world of pain management. Uh, When I wrote the proposal for my grant funding about three years ago, I had had, um, I've just, I've done pediatric hospice and palliative care work, I've always had an interest in pain management, I've had some bad family experiences, so I just wanted to improve education pain management. I had no idea it would become such a controversial topic, that the whole opioid epidemic would happen, and so just the literature in pain management in general has exploded, and if you look in emergency medicine, You know, two years ago, you'd pick up our leading EM journal, and there might be one pain-related article You know, every couple of months, and now there's like four or five pain articles every month. So, again, there's so much new information, it's very difficult to keep up with. At the same time, we have this whole opioid epidemic going on, the whole blame game, you know, we work with a very high-risk population, the ED, Uh, they're going to find a new drug. So my concern is, you know, we're going to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and and we've got to find a balancing act. So let's talk about, I know, does, how many of you, anyone here work in the ED in the emergency department? Okay, got a few people, yay. So we're hoping we'll get the word out to our colleagues, but I really didn't even know about pain week until probably about a year and a half ago, and I think emergency physicians are just starting to, to find out about this wonderful meeting. So let's talk about a few of our barriers and challenges that we have in the ED in managing pain and how that relates to a rapid pain assessment. So, you know, pain is something we see commonly. There are estimates that up to 78% of the patients we see, their chief complaint has some component of pain. You know, maybe a little lower than that, depending on the study you look at. Often we're doing things to patients that cause them to be in pain. We're We're having to do some type of procedure, some type of repair. Etc. We also see a lot of trauma patients, which is a painful condition. And it's very hard to communicate with someone that's in pain, so it's hard to get a good history or physical exam when you're dealing with someone that's in pain. And not to mention we work in a very error-prone environment. So I may, it's not that I I go in a room and I sit down with a patient for 10 uninterrupted minutes to get that history and physical The triage nurse or rescue may say, hey, we've got this patient with this, that, and the other, something to do with pain, and we go over some quick orders, and then I leave, and then I come back five minutes later, and then I leave to go do something else, and then I come back. So it's a very kind of chaotic situation that we deal with. We also deal with a very unique population of patients. Many of them do have mental illness, many of them are unfunded, they have no other medical care, they may have substance abuse. So we deal with a lot of biases and we have a very limited time to determine what's really going on with the patient. You know, we're also seeing an extreme of ages. I, clinic, I work in a, R.E.D. sees about a volume of 90,000 a year, we have a level one trauma center, we have a separate pediatric ED and I only pra- clinically practice pediatric emergency medicine but many community EDs, you may be seeing a two-year-old with a fracture right next to, you know, a 30-year-old addict next to an 80-year-old, you know, with a chronic disease. So it's really variable. Um, we know we have a limited formal education. Um, we're hoping to improve that, but most medical schools, you know, also nursing, paramedic, etc., do a really bad job of teaching pain management. The veterinarians do a much better job than we do unfortunately. So also we're trying to address this pain in a reasonable period of time, but we're under pressure to be moving patients. That's how we're like a churning factory. Our administrators, what they're interested in is what is our you know, our our door to discharge time. And we're also uh, do not have any standardized assessment, reassessment, or management tools in the ED. We're starting to develop some protocols and we really do a bad job when you're dealing with special populations like pediatrics or non-English speaking patients, et cetera. So there is no rapid pain evaluation tool for the ED or EMS that we know of. If you know it, we want to hear about it. So we're trying to do all this while we're balancing this whole hype and concern, a very legitimate concern because we all, um, you know, Treat patients every day that come in overdose or pronounce death almost on a daily basis in our ED from opioids. So, we're certainly very sensitive to that, but how do we also do a good job of taking care of the patients? And this is actually a scene from my ED that's been approved for us to use. So, it's not this way every day, but it can be this way, just to kind of give you a picture. So, let's, you know, with that as a background, let's talk about how do we do a rapid pain assessment one thing that gets down to your definition of what is assessment, Um, you know, is it a score? Is it really just a pain scale? Is it a whole history and physical? I guess when I think assessment, I think of, you know, I'm taking a history, I'm doing a physical, I'm getting a pain score, so what is an assessment? That means different things to, you know, I think to each of us. And if they don't receive an adequate assessment, you know, we know they don't, and the literature's out there, and sometimes they don't even get a pain score or or any type of assessment because they're too critically ill and there's other priorities. But many patients, we can assess them, but we just simply don't know the best way to do that. And again, there's a recent 2016 study. These are all in your references. We've got a very long bibliography at the end of the presentation that you can download. Only about 40 to 50% of trauma patients received a pain assessment. Um, So that sounds really bad. Like, what's wrong with you people? You know, you're not doing a pain assessment. But the numbers don't tell the whole story. If you really go back and look at the patient population, many times they're not getting a pain assessment because of acuity or their clinical condition. And so, as their injury severity score increases, they're much less likely to be assessed for pain. And this is from a Spillman 2016 article. So, this is kind of a real um, turning point for us that we, whatever protocol algorithm we come up with, you know, step one is. Are you critical? Are you unstable? Are you hypertensive? Are you life-threatening? Are you stable enough that we can wait a few minutes and and get a little bit more information and and determine what's going on with you from a pain standpoint? So that's kind of decision number one you have to make. So other reasons why is there a lack of ED assessment? Uh, We tend to use um, the numerical rating scale just because it's it's easy, it's fast. Um, We all use electronic medical records now Our triage nurse, that's the one who normally documents the pain score. And and they're having to document a million other things. If you look on, we use Epic, if you look on the electronic medical record, it's um, when was your last menstrual period? Are you thinking about killing yourself? Are your immunizations up to date? Are you in pain? Okay, what's your score? You know, what medicines are you on? Do you have any allergies? And it goes on and on and on. So, you know, that is what we tend to use, unless it's a child and we maybe use the FLAC score, FLAC scale, or FACES. But there's really no validated scales for the emergency department. And most ED providers are not even familiar with all the other wonderful scales that are out there. So let's briefly move on to um, attitudes. Uh, this is a great read. Um, it's from an article that was in Bioethics in 2016, and it's hypotheses for inadequate assessment are under. Estimation of pain, you know, in the ED setting, and we don't have time to go into all this today. But it is something I would recommend you read. So one, <coughs> we have a preference for signs over symptoms. We want to see some proof you're in pain, you know, and we tend to believe people that, you know, if they have tissue damage, so they've got a burn, they've got a cut, they were in MVC, versus maybe someone who. Um, has sickle cell pain, or has rheumatoid arthritis, or has lupus, or has some other type of pain that is not as easy to validate with the, with the blood and guts. Um, we So again, we have this belief that pain is proportional to tissue damage. There's also a lot of social distances between practitioners and some of the populations that can impair our judgment, and now we have this whole Thing we're dealing with with practicing defensive medicine because everyone's trying to, to criticize us for what we're doing are we giving too many days of pain medications what are we doing so there's a lot of reasons that, that play into the struggle that we're having in doing a rapid pain assessment so let's move on now to some um, the mandated pain assessments and pain satisfaction scores So it's amazing just from when we first started working on this talk, just in the last month what all has happened. So we know there's a whole controversy over patient satisfaction scores or HCAP scores and pain is the fifth vital sign. Uh, I'm a personal believer that pain should be the fifth vital sign or don't call it the fifth vital sign, call it whatever you want, but it's an important vital sign. It's an important part of the assessment. And I think that's really the point that we were trying to make is just to ask doctors to, you know, try to quantify somehow or at least address that pain is important and you know, we really should be treating pain I know I'm preaching to the choir here you know like we do any other vital sign if you have a high blood pressure we don't send you out with a high blood pressure we do something for it if you have a high pain score pain assessment you know we don't send you out until we address that so that controversy still you know playing out and yes there were some unintended consequences Um, The literature is out there, over-sedation dramatically increased from 11 to 24.5 per 1 million, you know, inpatient visits. You know, I don't have those numbers for the ED, but, um, you know, we know there were some adverse events from that. And we know that these mandated assessments, you know, maybe, you know, did not improve pain management and maybe caused some other problems, but it's, again, we don't want to throw the baby out with bathwater. It's still important. Uh, Patient satisfaction scores, again, a lot of controversy over that, so I'm not going to say too much. It is part of the HCAP scores, and even though those are not ED-based, patients don't come in and go, oh, let me see, let me evaluate my ED visit, and let me evaluate my hospital visit. They kind of look at the whole continuum of care. So, So patient satisfaction scores are important to the ED, and they're very important to our hospital administrators and those that determine the resources that we get. How about the electronic medical record? Many of us thought that the electronic medical record, you know, were just going to be the the answer to to everything. And there's good and bad with the electronic medical record. You know, the good thing is it's easy to go in and see, you know, how many times a patient's been in, what have they received before, but it it takes time to do that. But it also incorporated, uh, especially in nursing notes, a pain scale. So everyone has to have some type of pain scale documented. The problem I find with the electronic medical record is the view the physician sees versus the nurse sees versus the social worker sees or the psychologist or the pharmacist are all very different. So before you go pick up this paper chart, and I go, oh, let me see what the nurse said about pain. Let me see. And it's difficult to see. So I actually thought for a while our nurses were not evaluating pain. And then I found out I had to add a certain view. So the electronic medical record is, is kind of brought up a, you know, a mixed bag. but. Uh, it has given us the ability to at least track pain scores, and we certainly need to be consistent throughout the patient's visit. And it's also given us the ability. And EDs are starting to develop pain order sets. Uh, we were just talking to someone from uh, Colorado who's you know got like a menu that patients can go in and pick out for for certain things like for non-pharmacologic pain treatment. So I think you'll see things in the future um, with the EMR, but. No one to my knowledge has this great ED pain assessment tool that we can use in the EMR. And if anyone does, we'd love to see that so we can make it available. Um, one of the things that University of Utah has started that Dr. Sheikh found that I really love this statement is they have a whole kind of campaign called give patients a voice, not a number. So it's gotta be more than a number. Let's see. Um, In looking at if it's documented in the EMR, does it really improve care? Okay, so we're documenting this in the EMR, but does it really make a difference? And there's been mixed reviews of that, and there aren't that many studies in the ED, but there's a lot of pain research, as you know, going on in the post-operative area because of the emphasis on not having patients readmitted within 30 days. So those patients that have surgery really want to make sure they get great care and don't come back, so I think there's some things we're going to be able to learn about computerized uh, provider order entry and evaluation from our surgery colleagues. Pain, a rapid pain assessment is also important for discharge planning, so we talked about step one is are you critical? Are you non-critical? And then step two is really are you going to be able to go home or not? You know, are we gonna be giving you a plan for treatment at home or are we gonna be doing this in in hospital? And sometimes that's difficult to tell. I may be able to know in two seconds, you are not going home. You're gonna be here a long time. Or it may take me hours of test and reevaluation and consultants to say, hey, you know, you can, we've reassessed you and you can go home. Appropriate discharge planning is very important because again, it can reduce return visits, which is very important to our hospitals financially and and, um, our Medicare reimbursement. It expedites the patient's return to normal activities and work and it reduces the risk of acute pain going on to chronic pain. So let's talk about pain scales for a few minutes and I know most of you are here because you're interested in pain and you probably know about um, many of these scales. And the, the program we have, the Pain Assessment and Management Initiative, if you want to go to one place and see all the scales, we've got a whole page and it links to all the different scales. But I don't think most emergency physicians or, or nurses or providers know how many pain scales are out there, we just tend to pick a number or a face, um, you know, or maybe the FLAC scale. But of course there are adult scales, there's pediatric, there's special situations, but there's no pain scale that has really been validated for ED or EMS use. And actually, most of if you look back historically, most of the pediatric scales were developed for procedure type pain, and, and you know there's their scales if you have cancer, or the palliative care um, type scales, et cetera. There's two general categories. There's an observational behavioral scale, and then there's self-report scales. So these are just some examples, you know, of all the different, and again, this is just a fraction of the scales that are out there. And because we're, we're hospital-based, we have to follow what our hospitals determine, you know, are the best scales for us to use. But, but that's just one number that we're talking about. So what do these numbers mean? So you may have a patient that has this terrible hip fracture that's very stoic and says, uh, my pain is three, versus you have this person who looks pretty comfortable texting on her phone and says, uh, my pain is 10. So, so what do we do with those numbers? So again, it's very complex, very multifactorial, and these scales just give us one uni- unidimensional, dimensional, one little snapshot in time of what we're dealing with. One of the biggest things I've learned from my work um, with pain management and some other research studies that we do with UNC looking at uh, genetic components of pain um, is, is all the factors and you know precision medicine, personalized medicine, individualized medicine, whatever you call is wanna call it is, is the next booming thing in medicine because of, of different patients uh, genetics and how they respond to maybe a blood thinner or a hypertensive medication. And it's the same thing with pain. They're, very important genetic deter- determinants and differences between individuals and that makes a difference in how they express their pain and how you assess them. So I know you're familiar with most of these but I think we just have to keep driving the po- you know point home that there's not one number you have to take all these things into consideration. So with all that being said, w- what is the validity, you know, of a pain scale? What you know, what is this supposed to help us with? And these next few slides, I'm not gonna spend much time on in the interest of time so we can get to talk about what is it we really wanna do in the ED, but there are limitations to all these scales. And many of these studies are from the mid, you know, like 2003 to 2005. I think we've really gotta look at more, you know, current literature so, what does it mean? What's change do you need? So, in one study in 2003, they found a change of 30 on a visual analog scale was was the clinically important difference. But some of these studies were not done in the ED. So, we need to be able to determine. Go back here. You know what makes that scale significant. This is the FLAC scale we mentioned that we often use for children. And I really think there's some components of this that are important for adults. You know, Maybe it's not a number, but you're looking at their facial expression, you're looking at their activity. But this has really been studied more for children. My favorite scale is the Defense and Veterans Pain Rating Scale. Anybody here from the VA? All right, you guys are doing a great job. Yeah. So, the thing I love about this, we use a lot of color coding in the ED. Right? We do triage, your red, your yellow, your green. We use it for disaster planning. So, this is very multifunctional. You've got a number, you've got a color, you've got a face, you've got a mild, moderate, severe, and you have some functional qualifiers at the, the bottom and then the new scale that just came out is even better and we've got references to all this so we love this Um, it's got new faces that are a little friendlier to use Um, it's got correlation to the brief pain inventory short form Um, but the big thing we like are, are the supplemental questions and one of the things we really don't do a good job of in the ED is looking at functionality. So this could be very promising for us in the ED to give us more than the number, but what's the problem is this has been studied in the military, which is a very different population than we see. You know, this is primarily male, these are working patients, different education, so the, demographic, the demographics definitely are not reflective of what we see, but that's a potential for the future. These are some factors that are associated with higher pain scores, depending, doesn't matter you know, which type of pain score, so younger age, female, Medicaid, multiple ED visits, and then some of the chronic diagnosis. So we've got the score, you know, what does it mean? What do we do with it? You know, do we believe it? And then again, our key point of can the patient go home or what is our decision point? What score determines successful treatment or what color or whatever category you want to use. So before I turn over to Dr. Shea, kind of where we are up to this point is I'm giving you the background, and I know you all want some magical, you know, rapid pain assessment tool, but it's just not there. So what are we missing? One, what's out there has not been developed for the ED. Um, The scales that we use are really, most of the time, very simple scales. Most of them are not designed for chronic pain, and we see a mixture of acute and chronic pain. We don't have a context to go with it, and the big thing is these scales do not assess functionality. So, we, were, we wish we could have changed our presentation, but that would have really upset our, our colleagues at Pain Week. So we were, we were talking a few days ago, and we'll post this on our website, and again, I'm hoping by next year, we'll have kind of a whole rapid pain assessment for you. So what Dr. Shake is gonna focus on now is what else do we need to add besides a number, besides some of the things we've talked about. So kind of a draft that we've talked about, and this is not in your materials, and I will put on the website, step one is are you critical or non-critical? You know, are you life-threatening, life-threatening, that's done at triage. Two, do you think you'll be going home or will you be admitted? And again, we may be able to make that decision in one minute, it may be five hours, we don't know. Are we dealing with acute or chronic pain? Do you have any comorbidities? Do you have chronic disease? Do you have addiction risk? Do you have mental illness? What else do we need to look at? And then we do need some type of score, color, number, something for measuring just so we can track the progress. And then the last step is to combine all of those things, one through five, with kind of the key components that we find or red flags that we see in our history and physical to determine a plan. And that's if you're using a definition of assessment as something much broader. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Sheikh. She's gonna talk about some of the other things that we think should be added as a rapid pain assessment. And then we want to have plenty of time to get your feedback and for you to help us further define this new ED rapid pain assessment tool.
1: Good morning. So, so far we've talked about ways we can measure our patient's subjective pain experience. There's many other assessment tools out there that we should consider using for our patients in the emergency department, and that's what we're going to focus on uh, for the rest of the lecture. So, the first set is the first set of assessment—not um, really tool, but a, a resource out there that ED providers can use—is uh, the prescription monitoring databases. Virtually every state has one now. I think there's only one state that does not. Um, the quality of the uh, of these programs uh, very. Uh, vastly from state to state. Some are very good, others provide very minimal information. Um, Some are mandatory, some are voluntary. Uh, You know, there's some important information that we can get from uh, these programs and we'll talk about in the next few slides. But before we get to that part, let's talk about some of the the problems with this program, with these programs. Uh, You know, besides the technical issues um, that can arise, from this program, and th- those are what's listed in the first, um, listed here in the first column. Uh, there was one study that looked at <clears throat> providers and their use of these prescription monitoring programs. It took one person 109 clicks to get through the entire, to, to just evaluate one patient, um, and you can imagine in a busy ED that could take up a, a huge amount of your time and that will turn someone off to you know, states where it's voluntary, you can see that prescriber maybe never using that program again because they just didn't think it was a good use of their time. Uh, on this hand, uh, on the other column, you can see some of the more functional issues that arise from these programs. So while we do get some important data from prescription monitoring programs, some things that we don't get are, uh, it doesn't take into account non-medical use, it doesn't tell you the patient's abuse history, it doesn't tell you if the patient's on a pain contract. Um, if the patient lives in one state, and, you know, close to the border, maybe crossing from one state to the next, you have no way of knowing um, if the patient is doing that or not. So there are some limitations, but there are also some um, good that's come out of these programs. Um, and the first, set, the, uh, the first studies that I'm gonna talk about, um, they're not referenced here, but they're referenced in the PDF that you should all have. Um, they looked at predictors for opioid overdose, Um, using the prescription monitoring programs, and they found a couple of uh, interesting findings. Um, The number of days uh, that a patient received more than 100 morphine uh, mill equivalents, number of Trinity days, uh, number of prescriptions, um, all of these early refills, all of these can be used as kind of a prediction tool for determining a patient's risk for overdose. They also looked at what's considered high-risk behaviors, and they found patients who are um, uh, have prescriptions and are cashing in those prescriptions of over four opioids in a certain time period. Um, if they' are getting prescriptions from more than uh, you know, multiple providers um, in the past 12 months, those are all indicators for potentially high-risk behavior. So again, there's some good uses for prescription monitoring programs, but there's still room for those programs to grow. Uh, probably the most important um, assessment tools that we're gonna talk about today are ways that we can assess our patient's functional, uh, functionality, how pain is affecting um, their function and potentially causing disability. And as Dr. Uh, Henry mentioned earlier, we don't do a good job of this in the emergency department. These are a list of some of the tools um, available, not certainly not all of them. Um, many of you are probably familiar with these tools uh, and have used them before, and you can, you can take, you know, some of them are pretty short, but still probably averaging about 20, 30 minutes, um, depending on how much detail you get from the patient. Um, the Defense Veterans scale has only four questions, so it's a little bit quicker. Um, but, you know, in a busy ED, you may not have the time to do a full, to go through the entire brief pain inventory uh, form for every patient, even though it does provide valuable information. Uh, And what's more is many ED physicians aren't even aware of these functionality tools. So really bringing education to the ED about how we can incorporate these tools, how we can revise and shorten them um, to better benefit our patients. And then what do we do about reassessments? You know, you can maybe spend some time up front reassessing the patient, determining how their functionality has been affected, Uh, but once you institute a treatment, how do you reassess them? Do you perform the assessment all over again? Is there a shorter way to do it? Um, These are all questions that we have to think about. Substance abuse tools, there's many listed here. We probably do a little bit better job at this than we do with the functionality, um, but as you can see with the next couple of studies I'm gonna talk about, uh, there's still uh, much room for improvement. So earlier this year, there was a really good article published <clears throat> um, that you guys have references for in your handout. Uh, they, they looked at ED patients who were going to be discharged home with the opiate, and they found that 33% of these patients would have screened at risk on the SOAP uh, revised form. Um, so that would have been 33 patients who would have gone home with the opioid prescription who would have been deemed at risk for high-risk behavior. Uh, Broderick et al., in 2015, uh, they did a study where they asked patients at triage Um, In the past three months, have you used marijuana? Have you used any street drugs? And honestly, this is probably the way we do most of our substance abuse screening in the emergency department. The nurse at triage asking this very question. And that might be the extent of the the workup that the patient gets in terms of substance abuse. So just by asking that one question, uh, they missed 60% of individuals who would have tested positive on the assist screening tool. So again, we're not doing a very good job. We're missing these patients. Mental health tools, uh, you know, if a patient comes in suicidal, homicidal, those are easy. You know, we know how to deal with those patients. What about those patients who come in, you know, they're here for one complaint, but you know, there may be some underlying components of depression going on. We may or may not pick that up. And we may not realize how that affects their, uh, their assessment, their pain scores, their pain assessment. And if we don't recognize it, then we can't help our patients uh, fix those problems, or at least get them to a provider who can. Kapoor et al, um, again, published a study this year uh, looking at catastrophizing and anxiety scales in the ED. Again, something that most ED physicians are not aware of. Um, and they found, you know, not unexpectedly, that um, anxiety um, and catastrophizing affect pain. We, you know, most of you probably already know that. But we, most ED physicians don't realize how this can affect the, the pain score that a patient gives. You know, what part of that 10 out of 10 pain is actually anxiety? And if we don't take that into account, then we're not gonna address, uh, fully address our patient's pain level and we're not gonna fully treat them. So they recommended performing brief behavioral interventions along with pharmacological therapies. Uh, whenever we're assessing our patients or treating our patients. So this brings us back to the question. Does one perfect ED assessment tool exist? And as Dr. Henry mentioned, there's multiple barriers in the emergency department. You know, our first job, you know, day one of residency was ingrained in me. Is this patient sick or are they not sick? Are they critical or are they not critical? And that's always at the forefront of my mind whenever I see a patient and everything else follows suit. Um, The other distinct uh, difference between the ED and probably other environments is the way we do our patient evaluations. You know, just evaluations in general, not even pain assessments. It's often fragmented, disjointed. It's not a linear process. We don't have time to sit for 20 minutes, talk to our patients. As Dr. Henry mentioned, you may go in for five minutes before you're pulled out for a critical read from radiology. Or, you know, EMS just called in their five minutes out with a cardiac arrest patient. So you really have to utilize your time effectively um, and unfortunately you can't do a linear assessment you may be going back and forth back and forth between your patients which can make uh, it very difficult to perform a comprehensive assessment so ideally what's listed here is what we would like to do for all of our patients we'd like to take this objective combine that with some sort of objective tool functionality combine that with their risk for opioid addiction or substance abuse, use that along with their potential for pain catastrophizing and anxiety, uh, use, utilize the prescription monitoring programs, and then finally consider psychiatric conditions and comorbidities. So, ideally, this is what we would like to do. But in reality, is that possible in the ED? So, these next couple of slides just talked about you know, there's multiple mnemonics out there for how to do a good physical exam, or sorry, a good history and exam on your patient when it comes to pain, but if you were to really go through each one of these, again, very time consuming, you don't have time to do this for every single ED patient. So what do we do? So really, what it comes down to is tailoring your approach based on the patient, what their clinical scenario is, what their background is, and what else is going on in the ED at the time. So how you would assess the four-year-old with the lip laceration is gonna be very different from how you assess the 50-year-old or the 45-year-old with the, who's, on chronic, um, who's got chronic pain, who's on a pain contract. Different assessment tools would be indicated based on the scenario. So you can kind of think of all these assessment tools fitting into a toolbox and you pulling out of your toolbox um, you know, based on the patient and what they're presenting with what tools you would want to utilize for that patient. Because again, utilizing a one-step approach following uh, this sample algorithm here that we, we've created just for this uh, PowerPoint is not really realistic. You know, it'd be nice to go through all 10 of these steps for every single patient, but in reality, you don't have the time, and in reality, it may not be needed. Because again, the four-year-old with the lip laceration, you may not really need to spend time you know, figuring out their substance abuse history you know, if they're depressed, you know those kind of questions. You can skip over that, but that might become more of an issue if you're a fibromyalgia patient, your patient with chronic low back pain. You know, so you can begin to see there are some things that uh, some assessment tools that are indicated uh, depending on the patient, and others that are not. So this brings us back to what do we do? So again, like it, like Dr. Henry mentioned before, we don't really have the answer yet. But until we do, what we can focus on is a few key things. So our patient's subjective experience, what score they give us, we all know that that's not enough to dictate treatment, or or it should not be what we use to dictate our treatment. But it is important. That's what the patient can provide to us. That kind of gives us an idea of how the patient feels or how they're expressing their pain. And so it shouldn't be discounted. But that shouldn't be the end all be all. We take that value into account, along with some other objective information, are they walking? You know, the person with a chronic low back pain is it so severe that they're not able to walk. Um, that provides a lot more information um, than the person who does, who says they have chronic low back pain, they can't walk, but you've seen them walk up and down the hallway. They've asked multiple times to go outside for a smoke break. You know, those those. Patient factors, um, you know, those little things that you see in the ED when you're working will give you an impression of what's going on with the patient. So taking the subjective with the objective and then combining it or uh, actually contextualizing that number, like I said, person who's going out a lot of times for a smoke break versus the patient who's in bed and is, you know, in the fetal position. That helps you contextualize that subjective number that they gave you. So once you've done that, you can take that and then combine that along with your interpretation of other factors, other patient factors. Do they have multiple drug allergies? Uh, do they tell you, yeah, I have a history of alcohol abuse? Um, I have a history of depression. This is the fifth visit, uh, fifth time they've been to the emergency department in the past month. You know, all these things can kind of start to give you an idea of what's going on with the patient. So in conclusion. We need pain scales that are validated for the ED. As Dr. Phyllis, Dr. Henry mentioned earlier, there's great assessment tools out there, but they're really not intended for the ED setting. Until, and until we can get a scale that we can use for the ED setting, we have to utilize other ways of helping our patients. We need to determine ways to assess, like I said, the subjective, objective, and combine that with other patient factors or traits. to to come up with the overall clinical gestalt of what's going on with the patient. Um, We need more research um, into this area to help develop these tools. This is an example of a screening tool for palliative care um, that Dr. Henry and some of our other faculty created. Um, It's a very short form, can be done within five minutes. Something like this would be nice if we could create a tool like this to use on our patients in the ED. Again, you know, one, you know, having one form may not be ideal for every single patient, but it's the starting block. And again, because like I mentioned, how you deal with a four-year-old versus that 45-year-old is gonna be very different depending on what the complaint is um, and what's going on with the patient. But at least we have some place to start a foundation. Probably the most important thing we can do in the emergency department is communicate with our patient. Probably really this is true for any setting. Um, a lot of studies have looked at this issue uh, with communication, um, and we found that <clears throat> there's, uh, there's some major issues um, when we don't communicate with our patient. Now, that, As I mentioned earlier, the way we do our assessments are very disjointed, um, which can create problems with communication. So ways to smooth that over, is to, even though you may not have a full 10 minutes to come back and talk to the patient, if you just stop by for a minute or two, say, you know, how, how are you doing, how's your pain, you know, I can't talk to you in depth right now, but I'll be right back you know, as soon as I can. Those little uh, patient interactions can go a long way um, with helping your patient feel more comfortable. And helping your patient feel more comfortable will allow them to be honest about what's going on with their pain. Um, A study by Carter um, that was published earlier this year found that some patients would lie. They admitted that they lied about their score because they were afraid if they told their provider that, hey you know, I'm feeling a lot better, my pain's a lot better, they thought that the providers may not further work up what's going on with their pain, or they fear that they may not get any more medication, and so they lied. So understanding these underlying psychological uh, factors, motivating factors, um, can help us establish a better relationship with our patient in such a constrained environment. Uh, And then the other interesting study, um, this is a bit older, 2008, they found that <clears throat> about 19% of patients um, received analgesics even though they didn't want it. So obviously there, we didn't talk to our patients. We didn't ask them, you know, do you want an opioid? They would have told you, no, I don't. And they could have been treated with other uh, non-opioid medications. So again, communication's key. So, um, The other important uh, issue to discuss, especially with patients with chronic pain, um, is to set a realistic expectation of what's going to happen in the emergency department. Some patients come in thinking that they're gonna get their pain score to a zero. And in reality, that's not going to happen. Um, But if we're not honest and open with our patients and tell them upfront, you know, I know you're going through a lot, I know this is, you know, you've been doing everything you can at home, you've seen your your pain specialist, you've tried multiple times maybe to move your appointment up, you don't have another appointment for two months. Um, You know, I can do what I can, but I'm not gonna get your score to a zero. And that's, you know, pretty unrealistic for us to think that that's something we can achieve. So then you need to discuss with your patient what's your, um, what is achievable? What is something that you both can agree upon um, to help your patient? So pain is multifactorial, I think we all know that, and so our assessment should reflect that. So it's more than just a score um, or a number. Uh, Tailoring our assessment for every patient is probably key, and that's what's gonna allow us to rapidly assess our patients, determining what is important to assess and what we can probably um, uh, let go for now. We need to recognize the psychosocial factors that are at play, um, and then always reassess. Um, It's very easy to forget the reassessment component, and that's why a lot of hospitals have mandated, or JECO's mandated reassessments. Uh, But in a busy ED environment, it's very easy to forget the reassessment. As providers, it's very easy to rely on the nurse to do that. But in reality, we should be doing that as well, because we need to know how our patient is doing. Uh, And just taking that little bit extra time will help put some confidence in your patient so that they may be more honest with you when it comes time to reassessing their pain. So finally, know your limitations. Most importantly, know the limitations of your work environment. So like that 45-year-old with the chronic pain on a pain contract who says his pain has never been less than a 7 out of 10, you're probably not going to cure him today in the emergency department. That's probably something that's going to have to happen now as an outpatient. And, you know, understanding that, getting your patient to understand that, um, you know, you're going to save yourself a lot of energy and, and, and time by recognizing that. And then finally, consider the patient acuity, because after all, you are in the emergency department, um, and acuity always trumps um, pretty much everything else. Uh, at the same time, you want to make sure that you're – I'm not saying that we want to ignore the other needs of our patients, but uh, in reality, that's what the emergency department is for, is um, you know, to stabilize and to assess what's life-threatening. And then finally, setting reasonable levels of uh, care as well as open communication. So does anybody have any questions or any comments we're open to uh, suggestions uh, and again as we said this is a continuous process that we're working on trying to get feedback for anybody if anybody has ideas about a rapid pain assessment tool that we could use in the ed or other factors that maybe we didn't discuss today that we should consider when assessing our patients okay
0: so we have the toolbox you know theory that we have and Uh, you know we're some of the things that we have listed there we're going to have we're also going to add a part to um, you know you critical non-critical and try to come up with kind of a little screening form or algorithm similar to the palliative care screening tool she showed I think even if we just start with something you know then we can refine it so I see a question or comment there so
1: Problem with urine drug screen is, what type of drug screen are you talking about? We all know that urine drug screens only um, capture a small amount of drugs, and with all the synthetic drugs that are out there, having a negative screen doesn't really tell you much. If you're looking for cocaine or THC, then your standard urine drug screen will be great. But other than that, um, there's so many false positives and negatives that you can't hang your hat on urine drug screens to really make an informed decision. The other thing is based on the state that you live in, for example, we're from Florida, you actually have to get patient consent to do a urine drug screen. So if the patient doesn't give you consent, then you're not gonna get that drug screen done. We actually have to have them sign a form saying that they're allowing us to take uh, their urine and to test it. Right, so there are two comments. So yes, um, one, a lot of uh, ED physicians feel uncomfortable writing more than what we're used to prescribing, five or 10 milligrams. Um, and a lot of times we don't take the effort to notify or find out um, the providers. Sometimes we do, but remember the ED is open 24 seven. So if the patient, patient presents at 3 a.m., who are we gonna call? And a lot of these pa- patients do. They come after hours, they present on weekends, they present on holidays, because we're there. And so the problem is who do we contact during those times? And when we're trying to move patients and As Dr. Henry said, you know, you may have a cardiac arrest patient coming in, you have a patient who um, needs to be intubated because they're in CHF Mm -hmm. and they have fluid pulmonary edema. You know, you just have all these critical patients that you're trying to balance. Unfortunately, we don't always take the time we should with our more stable patients. And we tend to just do what's quickest. Um, And that kind of goes back to the prescription monitoring programs too. The information is, is there, not all the information in every state, but a lot of times we don't utilize that simple step because it's it's an extra step that we have to do it's much easier to write a prescription for oxycodone than it is to take that extra 10 minutes to remember your password look it up and then what if the the site is down there's been so many times where i've tried to look up and either the maintenance they're doing maintenance or i've been kicked out because for some reason my account is locked Um, i think in the past six months my account's been locked three times and so it just becomes a turn off. Nobody wants to use it anymore. And you're gonna do, unfortunately, the easiest thing. So you're right, we, we should be doing a better job communicating, um, but a lot of times all we know is what the patient tells us. So if they don't know the name of their provider, they don't know the clinic, they don't know the phone number, we can try to Google it and find it. But a lot of times we have to rely on what the patient tells us, and sometimes they don't wanna tell us um, who their provider is. Or they say, oh, that, the clinic is closed, that person's out on vacation, or um I you know i don't I'm not able to be seen and I, I lost my funding. i don't I'm not being seen by that specialist anymore. Um, there's all sorts of stories. Um, and unfortunately, we don't have a way of verifying it. We have to rely on what the patient tells us. Um,
0: but probably, I think it's something yeah. we could add, like in an algorithm, you know, do you see a pain specialist? Are you on a pain contract? And that's really what we're trying to do with our whole pain assessment and management initiative is improve education of ED physicians. Many of them really don't even get, there's different types of pain. Um, there are a lot of things that are being done in pain clinics that we're not even aware of, so mm-hmm. just really trying to expand their horizons so we can ask appropriate questions. And uh, we actually have a whole dosing guide and reference guide, and it's got the equivalent, so if you're on you know this amount of medication, you know to help them in doing that, but that's something um, we're improving training in an emergency medicine residency programs, a, but we're not there yet. Yeah. But.